Australia Day today. If there's any chance to play a bit of the oils, this would well be it, wouldn't it? Quintessentially Australian. Remarkable song. After Midnight Oil toured through the outback in 1986, playing to remote Aboriginal communities and seeing firsthand the seriousness of the issues in health and living standards, they were inspired to write it. It's a song about giving native Australian lands back to the Pintupi peoples, who were among the last people to come in from the desert, many forcibly removed. Diesel and Dust was ranked number one, the best Australian album of all time in the uh, 100 top Aussie albums. It's a great tune, isn't it? Yeah, I love that song. I mean, isn't it? It just takes me straight back. I can see the video for this, I think. In my mind, there's just this red earth and there's um, Peter, what's Peter, what's his name? The singer? Peter Garrity. Peter Garrity. Peter Garrett, Garrett. rather. Yes. He's, and he's got this very distinctive dancing style. Yes. And that very lean that's figure it, with the ball. I can head. see it now. Yeah, it just takes yeah. you right back. Yeah, it's a fantastic song. Spend any time in Australia? Yeah, I've spent lots of time in Australia. Like yeah. it? I do. I really like Australia. And I like Australians, yeah. but uh, they've got some. Issues uh, by the there. way, someone says I checked several times. There's no rollerblades on your website. There's a bit of interest in the rollerblade man, uh, Troy from Analytics. Uh, so uh, we will uh, have that uh, image of this, his pioneering e blades for you very shortly. Uh, as I understand, uh, my wonderful producer, Ayana, is putting them up in the next few minutes so you can see uh, Troy from Analytics uh, roller e- rollerblades very soon. It's 25 to 5. Uh, you've got the quiet country roads, your inner city streets, your suburban grids, and the humble cul-de-sac. Haven or urban planning hell. You might live in a cul-de-sac, but our next guest won't be living in one, calling it a virtually useless road, and asks, why on earth do we persist in them? So before we go to uh, that gentleman, we have Claire on the line. Welcome, Claire. Hello. Do you you actually live in a cul-de-sac? I sure do, 100%. 30 years here. 20 years in the other one, and about 10 years in that one before that. Hang on, let me get this straight. You've lived in three cul-de-sacs, back to back to back. Well, it was a kind of couple of skints in uh, the UK, but we don't count those. Samoa doesn't have roads, so, you know. <laughs> so do you, find it, do you find it depressing? Do you find it lonely being in a cul-de-sac? Why, why, do, you, why do you live in one? Well, mainly because it was cheap. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, I lived in a cul-de-sac in Ponsonby in the olden days, um, when it wasn't the Ponsonby that we know now, um, mainly because that's how I learned how to um, rollerblade. Speaking of rollerblading, <laughs> no, that's just hilarious. Um, the only way to stop my rollerblading, which actually was, um, was to go down the hill straight away and hit the fence with my head because I didn't know how to brake. Mm. All because of. Did you hear Troy before with his e blades? I sure did. Yeah. All right. So you're on the side of pro cul de sac. One hundred percent. Good on you, Claire. Thanks for that. Stay listening, uh, because you're not. You may well not be happy with us as Dr. Tim Welsh, senior lecturer in architecture and urban planning at the University of Auckland. Dr. Welsh, kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. On the other hand, you said the cul de sac is a suburban trap. Why? Well, uh, I mean, there's a number of reasons. So cul-de-sacs, um, as we call them, are dead ends because really there's no escape. There's one way in and one way out. Uh, and that often means that 
access things like school and groceries and work, you have to drive a car. It's just not able to walk or bike or take public transportation. Uh, so that's one of the main concerns we have around cul-de-sacs and that type of development. Was it was it a thing of its age? Was it a suburban uh, design aspect that had its day? Okay, oh, you repeat that. Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit. Was it a, was it a design aspect uh, of a bygone era? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was part of the rapid urban expansion of suburban expansion. So it allowed uh, urban developers, city developers, um, land developers to kind of spread single family house. They could ignore the landscape. They didn't have to worry about uh, conforming to uh, the topography as much as a gridded pattern would require. And they could build it with a fraction of the infrastructure required for a traditional plan. So it was cheaper and much higher profit margins to kind of build out this dead-end style roads. Let's go to the panel. Nikki. Yeah, I was, I've just been scrolling in my mind through all the houses I've ever lived in. I don't think I've lived in a cul-de-sac ever. And I hadn't thought about this until this came up, but I really would never want to live in one now. I, I agree that, I, that it's, a, it's an isolating experience. And when I think about cul-de-sacs, all I can think of is suburbia and loneliness. My goodness me, Nikki. Uh, stay there, Tim. Uh, Peter. Right. Well, urban planning. Hi, Tim. Uh, that sounds oxymoronic to me sometimes, like military intelligence or something like that. Uh, um, I, I never really had an opinion about cul-de-sacs. I didn't know they were bad or good. Uh, there are a lot of things I don't like in urban planning. I don't like sprawl, don't like parking spaces. And the last – I've never really given a lot of thought to cul-de-sac except for the fact that I live on one. And uh, I don't mind the isolation because the rest of my life is not isolated, so I don't much mind it. There's a there's a bit of a trend coming here, Tim. For example, here's one. Uh, by the way, uh, I also learned to roll a blade in a dented road. The best <laughs> part of my childhood. So much community, so much connectedness. All the kids played after school together on our bikes, roller blades. So there's a connection between Troy's story from e-blading and cul-de-sacs. Another one here, Wallace. I grew up in a cul-de-sac in Hamilton. The best place as a kid to make friends and play safely, but a bit of a dead end for adults. So the theme comes through Tim is that many memories coming through of growing up in a cul-de-sac but it seems to suggest living on as an adult not quite as fancy. Well certainly they've been sold as a that's safe for kids to play uh, and maybe the, the lower traffic on a cul-de-sac can be helpful for that. Uh, the problem is that points to a larger issue of a broken street. So our regular streets, our gridded patterns, uh, have traffic you know, that's so fast uh, that oftentimes it's unsafe for uh, kids to play in that style of development. So they've kind of been farther and farther away from the city into these deep into these suburbs. But as an adult, yeah, they isolating, you have to drive everywhere, drive your kids to activities, uh, so they can cause a, a lot more cost in terms of driving distance and the number of cars you own and things. I'm just, I'm just also, Tim, I'm just Dr. White, I'm, I do want to stick up for the cul-de-sac lovers, uh, the, the pro cul-de-sac uh, panel listeners, because I'm just, I've got a picture in my mind and it's of, I'm grabbing a sausage from a little wee um, street party. Um, there, are, there, are, there are little flags above, they're playing a bit of um, shaggy, you know, um, <laughs> you've got people rollerblading. And it's all happening within a little cul-de-sac. It's connectedness. It's family. 
That's what I'm saying, Tim. Yeah, I mean, we see that a lot. Um, there's a couple issues with that. So those are special events that can, they can occur in really any road that you close off to the public. Uh, but at the same time, what we've observed in cul-de-sacs is that because the roads are wider, have sight, uh, you, you can't see as well down the road, they have fewer intersections, people will drive faster. So there's actually a 270% more but of a fatal crash occurring in a cul-de-sac oh compared to a normal street pattern. Didn't know that. Um, <laughs> so your street party yeah. is going to be fatal. I think we're going to have to look into that statistic here on the radio. I'm not sure, so sure of that. But look, you've got roads, and they're for cars, but having a world for cars is inferior. So one of the great things about cul-de-sacs is you park your car. It's done. There's nowhere else to go, and so it's not a car's life. It's a human's life. Tim. No cul-de-sacs. Yeah, I mean, you could certainly argue that, but also everything is carp in a cul-de-sac. So if you order a package, it has to be delivered, and the delivery has to wind down every street to get to your house, uh, wherever you are. If you want to go to the grocery store, you've got to get in that car. If you live in a neighborhood that's better connected, has better call permeability, you can use public transportation, you can use a bike or your feet to get to all these other things without having to be in a car. Tim, so, Tim, you've set you've people. set our machine alight with your pro uh, anti cul-de-sac um, sentiments. Um, really, uh, some supporting you, others not. For that, uh, Kira, thank you for your time, and really appreciate the conversation. My pleasure, thank you. That's Dr. Tim Welsh, there, uh, senior lecturer in architecture and urban planning at Auckland University. Uh, uh, Carol says, "Who is this dude going on about cul-de-sacs?" <laughs> I didn't know cul-de-sacs was such a provo- provocative thing. I didn't either, but, you know, I'm thinking now, if you're a stay-at-home mum and you don't have a car and you live in a cul-de-sac, it is not the happy life that these people are describing. It's sad and isolating. Really? I stand really? by my... Yes. Oh, yeah, Because you've got to... How are you going to move around? How are you going to connect with other people? It's, it's sad and lonely and isolating. That's just offensive to cul-de-sac people, isn't it? I think people have this idol, of you, which is your vision, of everybody being all happy and riding around on bikes and connecting <laughs> with each other. And, but that's, that's something from the 1970s. That's not happening now. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Uh, we're we're going we're to come back to this. We're going to do cul-de-sac part two. <laughs> I can two. see that you were fired up about yeah. it. Now. All right. Um, uh, 15 to 5, the panel on RNZ National. This year, forget Unitech, Wintech. Open Polytechnic 2023 is the year of uh, Tipukanga. 16 polytechnics and most industry training organizations all go under a single brand this year. About $200 million has been spent setting up uh, Tipukanga, and now the Minister of Education uh, is the Prime Minister to discuss. We have Merrin Davis, former Chief Executive of Unitech and formerly Deputy Chief Exec with Tipukanga. Uh, Merrin Kiora. So you used to be there, now a critic of this huge centralisation. What has changed? How long have you got? Um, no, in, in, in a nutshell, I, I guess um, I went from having had the privilege to lead the uh, turnaround of, of Unitech uh, in, in terms of its financial and, and academic performance. And um, so I went to Tipukinga and, and the role as Deputy Chief Executive of, of Transformation and Transition with great excitement uh, because there were a lot of issues in the sector and 
um, you know, I could see a great opportunity uh, for major change. But in a nutshell, the gap, I guess, between my expectation of, of, of the quality of, of, of governance and, and leadership and things that, that were necessary for such a, a major national change uh, and the reality of, of what it was when I got in, in there, um, I didn't feel that the focus was on the right things. And um, after six months, decided that, that there wasn't any chance we would, would actually, I guess, deliver on it. And so I felt I had to get up, get up from the table wow. at that time. Very interesting. Yeah, okay, so this is this is a huge uh, project. Um, it's become quite political. There have been cost overruns. There have been um, heads stepping down. Supporters say this here, this will remove unnecessary duplication, unnecessary cost, and unnecessary competition, what do you say? Uh, potentially, it, it could, um, but realising realizing those types of benefits um, require a very um, efficient, effective organisation and what certainly what we've seen to date, I would, I would not describe okay. in that way. All right. Well, Peter, you're in the education field. Uh, do you want to uh, come on in? I am. But, of course, this is a bigger question. It really does nicely fit with so many other things, which is do we think that larger and more centralized is more efficient? Mm. And when it comes to saving costs, my guess is almost never. That is, why is it in the interest of the government to spend less money of other people's. So I just doubt it. I think this is a power grab, alas, whatever the ideological reasons. And I don't know. I'm just saying this on the air. Um, but I'm really skeptical. If the KPI is saving money, let's have that back on with cul-de-sacs in a year or two <laughs> and find out because I'm highly skeptical. Okay. So before we go to Nikki, there, 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 uh, there are some, Mirren, that – I mean, some of these politics have a really strong presence, don't they? I'm thinking, for example, your Nelson MIT, Canterbury's ARA, you've got your Southern Institute of Technology. I mean, very strong personalities. There could be that loss of local trust. To, you know, the, the young learner is at a bit of a loss um, uh, with the new model. Well, well look, I, I mean, I think the, the, these, these two sort of separate things that are, that are getting a bit conflated uh, in, in the conversation around the chats. One is the tipping a brand um, and what that means or doesn't mean and then tipping of the organisation and um, what that is or isn't delivering. And I guess as a new brand, um, you know, um, expecting people to recognise, understand, but take a leap of faith around it um, if the early signals are not good, I, you know, I, I, I think that that is where it becomes problematic for for learners, um, particularly, you know, for, for young people that are having to make those choices right. and, and, and their parents. Okay, Nikki. Yeah, I don't have too much to add. Actually, yep. I was kind of thinking of what you had said, Wallace, about about the fact that some of these institutions have built up this really strong identity, and this and Southern Institute is one of those ones. And it seems a shame, like from a branding point of view. That's got the reputation now of a of a really good quality educational facility, and I don't know this this seems like it's dumbing it back down again, which is probably not serving the system. Final thoughts, Mirren? Look, I, I think at the moment we've got co branding, so we, we've now got SIT to Pukinga and Wintech to Pukinga. 
Um, right. I I think that um, you know what needs to be looked at really really closely is is what is the value um, of both those brands. What are they achieving? What do they stand for? What how could it work? And certainly, it's far too early to spend the, the the time and money, and I guess more public goodwill by actually saying, "Well, we said we're going to get rid of those, um, you know, those those subsidiary brands in 2023, come hell or high water, uh, and throw the baby out with the bathwater." So, okay. you know, I think that's the risk. Very good, Mirren. Yeah, nice to have you on the program, Kiara. Uh, that's uh, Mirren Davis, former uh, chief executive of Unitech, former deputy chief exec with uh, Te Pukanga. There are um, more just the cul-de-sac people just <laughs> flooding in. Um, we, we brought our children up in a cul-de-sac. Of course they did. Nikki, That's the nostalgic be... idol that these people are all focusing you're, on. You're, 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 these are our listeners. <laughs> And you're putting every single one of them down. Um, so many happy memories of children all playing together, Nikki Bazant. Christmas parties, wonderful times. People looked out for each other, Nikki. Quiet and secure environment with little traffic. Children recall it fondly. I love that. That sounds amazing. But is that happening today in the, in the sprawling housing subdivisions of Auckland? I do not think so. All right. Now, uh, the ribbon was cut at New Zealand's first electric bus depot yesterday in Panmure, Auckland. It houses 35 buses running on the Tamaki Link. It's part of the move to a zero-emission future. But will it make people hop on? We just thought we'd just check into this and have a little bit of a chat for a couple of minutes. With us is Russell Turnbull, the director of Go Bus. Russell, uh, I understand you're on the road right now. I have have stopped. Thank you very much, Wallace. So we are driving uh, safely and in, in, uh, in the right place. Wow. We've got a good reception. Could, have you stopped the whole bus with people on it to talk to me? Uh, sadly, no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, that does happen in my day every so often, but not today. Now, these buses, uh, I am a bus goer. I'm going on a bus in about 20 minutes' time. Usually very noisy, very loud. Fumes, diesel. Are they better rides? Um, look, the ride is very smooth. You're talking about the latest ride technology, and importantly, they're very quiet as well. And um, and they're air conditioned, and they're just lovely to travel in. And, and I'm a bit like you; I travel in one almost every other day too. All right. Tell us about this depot. So this is um, New Zealand, if not Australasia's largest electric-only depot. So. Only electric buses run from this depot, so there's 35 of them in there, and uh, it's just all been switched on, and it's um, it's going now. And as you said, uh, buses from East Auckland through Tamaki Lincoln and other services uh, are all running from there now. So it's very exciting. Okay, mm, very interesting, Nikki. That is exciting. Am I going to see these buses in my part of town, which is the central Auckland? Well, absolutely. You've already got the uh, red. Uh, in a city link, which is electric at the moment. And uh, the next depot that gets electrified is out at Glenfield. I'm sorry, not at Glenfield, that's the second one. The first one is out at New Lynn. So, you know, services coming in through New North Road and Sandringham Road, you'll start to see electric buses there. And New Zealand's first double-decker electric bus sort of fully built up 
will be there too. So that's exciting. It's funny actually you mentioned that. It, it pops to my mind, uh, Russell. I, so I jumped on this red inner city link bus uh, about a month ago. I thought, why is this ride different? Couldn't put my finger on it because it was so smooth and so quiet. I thought, there's something very chilling about this ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, a, a, a great story, especially for our, our local neighbours out at Panure. The drivers tell me the difference between Friday when they were all diesel starting up in the morning and Monday, it was eerie because it was super quiet. There was no noise as the bus was left the depot. Good on them. Peter? Well, that's good news. I hope the, I hope the drivers like it. If the drivers really like yeah. it, that's a good thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. Wallace, I'm so scared to ask whether any of these buses go down cul-de-sacs. Yeah. So I, I guess I'll I skip that. I bet they don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nikki, you're right. Not you enough. are. <laughs> hey, Russell, lovely to have you on. Thank you for that. Um, and uh, apparently they each bus um, – uh, a typical bus emits six tonnes – of CO2 every year. These ones don't. And I checked up the MIT US website. What does a ton of CO2 look like? Well, imagine a cube, 27 feet tall, wide and long, um, and it's an actual ton, the same weight as a ton of bricks. That's one ton. So it is very interesting, isn't it? So that's what uh, is not going into the atmosphere. Well, finally, um, we have to come back to the issue of the day on the panel with Nikki Pizan and Peter Field, that issue being cul-de-sacs. Uh, such was the response. We've got to end the show with it. And I understand we have on the line none other than Gilda. Hello, Gilda. Hello, Wallace. Now, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've been listening to your program with interest. What do you think? Well, I'm for cul-de-sacs because I've lived in a cul-de-sac this year. My family will have lived in a cul-de-sac for 30 years, and it's been great. It's been a good experience. In what way? Well, there's only about 21 houses in the street, and we sort of all know each other, so we look out for one another. Uh, you know, when people are away on holiday, the neighbours will check their mail, walk around the garden and oh, yeah. the alarm goes off, that sort of thing. So it's a very, you know, we know each other. And in our street, you don't really have fences. I think there's a covenant that you don't have fences on the front of properties so that it's very open. And, uh, no, it's good. It's been a That's really a good, good point, Nikki, you didn't bring up. Um, cul-de-sacs often, they don't have fences. Uh, that sounds idyllic. Where is this beautiful idol, Gilda? Where are you? Uh, in... Um, uh, North Coast on the North Shore in Auckland. You, how long have you been living in a cul-de-sac, Gilda? Uh, 30, 30 years. Oh, my. Yeah. 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 Is it fair and to... I do get the bus. I do get the bus to work every day and home again. No, but, so. but, but how far away is your bus stop from, from the cul-de-sac? must be miles away. No, 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 no. It's about, um, oh, a three-minute run for me or a five-minute walk. So in both directions, so I can get down to the end of my street and walk either way and there's a bus stop, you know, within a very short distance. I think that you might have changed Nikki's mind. I, feel, I see the face, <laughs> Nikki. You want to live in this cul-de-sac, don't you? I do not, but it does sound rather lovely. And, you know, if, if I had that kind of connection with my neighbours yeah. over 30 years, then I wouldn't want to move either. And that's actually what it's about, isn't it, Peter? It's about if you can get that connectivity with... Neighbours, it's pretty special. 
That's what it's about. And yeah. there are many ways of doing it, but cul-de-sacs seem to be a really good way of not just having people go through, but stop. Very good, Gilda. Hey, thank you for listening to the panel. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, and thank you. Bye, very Gilda. Good. That's Bye-bye. it. What a wonderful panel. Peter Field, kia ora to you. Nice to have you back on. And as well as you, Nikki Bazant, haven't seen you for a while. All the best. Thanks for my little present of uh, dark chocolate. Enjoy. Oh, thank you. All right, I'm back to my power ballad Friday. More on cul-de-sacs uh, in the mailbag, no doubt. Lisa Owen uh, with Checkpoint next. See you tomorrow, 3.45.